Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called A Troubling Generosity. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 24th, 2017. In his 1993 book, Wishful Thinking, A Seeker's ABC, Frederick Buechner offers this advice about reading scripture. Don't start looking in the Bible for the answers it gives. Start by listening for the questions it asks. He goes on to say, when you hear the question that is your question, then you have already begun to hear much. Two questions lie at the heart of this week's lectionary readings. Neither is easy or comfortable to confront, but if we allow them to become our own, they might have something to teach us. The first question is addressed to Jonah, the reluctant protagonist of this week's Old Testament reading. Following his precarious adventure in the belly of the whale, Jonah has obeyed God's instructions and warned the people of Nineveh the God is about to bring calamity on them for their wickedness. But in an astonishing turn of events, the Ninevites have taken Jonah's warning to heart and repented, and God, seeing their penitence, has changed his mind and shown them mercy. Instead of being thrilled at the success of his mission, Jonah responds with fury. He becomes so angry and despondent, in fact, that he tells God he would rather die than live, and hunkers down east of the city, hoping God will change his mind again and burn Nineveh to the ground. Instead, God offers Jonah an object lesson, using a weed, a worm, and the wind, and concludes with a zinger of a question. Is it right for you to be angry? The question is a fraught one, given the context, because Nineveh isn't just any old city. It is a capital city of Assyria, Israel's bitter enemy and tormentor. Notorious throughout the ancient Near East for its violence and depravity, Assyria is the empire that will eventually obliterate the northern kingdom of Israel. To Jonah, then, God's question is a ridiculous one. Of course he has a right to be angry. Isn't it right to be angry that God's mercy extends to ruthless killers? Isn't it right to be angry that violent, dangerous people don't get the fire and brimstone they deserve? Isn't it right to be angry that God's profligate grace overturns our assumptions about justice, righteousness, and the appropriate punishment of evildoers? I love the fact that God doesn't rebuke Jonah for his anger. Instead, he playfully attempts to broaden Jonah's horizons so that Jonah will see the Ninevites as God sees them. For while they might be everything Jonah believes them to be, they are also more. They are a great city, but they are broken and lost. They are people, God says, who do not know their right hand from their left. Most importantly, though, they are gods. Just as the whale, the weed, the worm, and the wind in Jonah's story belong to God, so do the Assyrians themselves. They are his creations, his to plant, his to tend, his to uproot. Should God not care for his own? Is it right for Jonah to be angry? The story ends with this hard question unanswered. We are left with Jonah still sulking, sitting outside the city and waiting to see what will happen to a people he hates and God loves. And so we too are left to wrestle with the scandalous goodness of God, a goodness that insists we become instruments of God's grace even to our worst enemies, a goodness that asks us why we so often prefer prefer vindication to rehabilitation, why we crave punishment for the lost and broken instead of healing and hope, why we happily grab every second chance God gives us, even as we deny second chances to others, why we nurse envy and bitterness in our hearts, refusing to see the complexity God sees in the faces of those who wish us harm. Do we have a right to be angry? God leaves us to decide. The second and related question comes from the New Testament reading for this week, the parable of the generous landowner, as related in the Gospel of Matthew. In the story Jesus tells, a landowner goes out to the marketplace early in the morning to gather day laborers for his vineyard. 
After agreeing to pay them each a denarius, a day's living wage, the men required to keep a small family fed, housed, and clothed, he sent them off to work. During the course of the day, however, he returned to the marketplace a surprising four more times, at 9 a.m., at noon, at 3 p.m., and even at 5, a mere hour before quitting time, and recruits everyone he finds there, promising to pay them each whatever is right at the end of the day. Sure enough, when the workday is over, the landowner instructs his manager to pay the laborers, but he tells them to do so in an odd way. Pay them in reverse order, he tells his manager, starting with those who work the least number of hours and ending with those who put in a full day. The manager proceeds as directed and pays each laborer exactly the same amount, one denarius. When the laborers who start to work at the crack of dawn see this, they are enraged and protest the blatant unfairness of the landowner. These last have worked only one hour, they say, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But the landowner deflects their accusations and answers them with a question similar to God's question to Jonah. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? Are you envious because I am generous? Writer Mary Gordon, in her book Reading Jesus, calls this an impossible question, calling for an impossible honesty. Because yes, she writes, I am envious because you are generous. I'm envious because my work has not been rewarded. I'm envious because someone got away with something. Envy has eaten out to my heart. I appreciate Gordon's candor, because really, if this parable doesn't offend us at least a little bit, then we're not paying attention. After all, we know how the world is supposed to work. Time is money, and fair is fair. Equal pay for equal work is fair. Equal pay for unequal work is not fair. Where I live in Silicon Valley, technology startups often turn initial investors into millionaires, and why shouldn't they? Surely those who took the biggest risks and worked the hardest in the beginning deserve to reap the greatest rewards. The early bird gets the worm. It's only fair. But God, if indeed the landowner in this parable represents God, is not fair, at least not according to our cherished beliefs about fairness. This God, it turns out, does not believe that the best place to be is at the front of the line. He isn't interested, as we so often are, in showing favor to the best and the biggest and the brightest, the workers with the most elite educations, astonishing professional achievements, or fanciest zip codes. This God is not obsessed with who deserves what. In fact, he doesn't even ask why some workers were able to start at dawn and others were not. All that he's obsessed with is making sure that every last person gets a place in his vineyard, the early bird and the latecomer, the able-bodied and the infirm, the young and the old, the popular and the forgotten. In case we're tempted to relegate the economics of the story to first-century Palestine, let's consider its implications again. Why did some laborers end up unemployed until 5 p.m.? The parable is very clear, because no one would hire them. Perhaps they weren't as literate, educated, or skilled as their competition. Perhaps they had children to care for at home. Maybe they had transportation difficulties. Maybe they were disabled or didn't have green cards or were victims of discrimination. Whatever the case may be, the landowner doesn't ask these laborers to defend themselves. He just makes sure every worker ends a day with the dignity and security of a living wage, the capacity to go home that night and feed his family. Are you envious because I am generous, asks God, or, literally in the Greek, is your eye evil because I am good? It embarrasses me to admit this, but ever since I was a little girl, I have always assumed when hearing or reading this parable that I would have been one of the 6 a.m. workers in the landowner's vineyard. Of course I'd be first in line and ready to go before the sun came up. Of course I'd work the hardest and the longest. Of course I'd be the most deserving in the landowner's praise. After all, I'm type A. I'm a good girl. I'm a J on the Myers-Briggs and a 6 on the Enneagram. I'm a perfectionist and a people pleaser. But consider this. 
The parable reads very differently if you situate yourself at the end of the line. The workers who got more than they expected to, the ones who received more pay than they thought they deserved, they were ecstatic at the end of their work day. Ecstatic, stunned, thrilled, and grateful. Their experience was one of blessing, and I'll bet that what went on at the end of the line was one big, raucous party. But all the other stuff, the envy, the bitterness, the grumbling, the dissatisfaction, those belonged to the deserving folks at the front of the line. Though the landowner had honored his agreement with them, though they had their daily bread in hand, though they lacked no good thing, they spent their off hours consumed with frustration and anger. Is your eye evil because I am good, God asked them. Maybe, if God's generosity offends us so much, it's because we don't have eyes to see where we actually stand in the line of God's overflowing grace and kindness. I find it instructive that the landowner insisted on paying the workers in reverse order, thereby making sure that the first worker saw what the last received. How much easier it would have been to pay the all-day laborers first, sending them home before they could see what their less deserving counterparts received. But no, the landowner wanted them to see what kind of vineyard he ran. He wanted them to experience what radical generosity looks like. Is it right for you to be angry? Are you envious because God is generous? Listen for the questions. When you hear the question that is your question, then you have already begun to hear much. For books this week, we review Elizabeth Strout's Anything is Possible. Elizabeth Strout's newest book is a sequel to her previous novel, My Name is Lucy Barton. In that book, Lucy Barton told about growing up in an impoverished and dysfunctional family in the tiny rural town of Amgash, Illinois, a run-down town, and then moving to New York City where she became a writer. This book reverses course. Lucy travels back to Amgash after an absence of 17 years. As when her mother visited her in New York City, Lucy's return to her family roots is an occasion for small-town gossip, reminiscence, reconnection, and deep introspection all around. The archaeology of family history is a delicate and complicated task. Memory plays tricks on you. People can parse a shared experience in different ways. All human love is imperfect. People in Amgash live small-town lives, but in Strout's empathetic telling, they carry around big-time hurts and questions. Like Tommy Guptill, now in his 80s, who spent 30 years as a school janitor after his family farm burned to the ground. Vets battling PTSD. A marriage that ends after 51 years. Childhood traumas, aging parents, troubled teenagers, creepy voyeurs. Painful memories long buried. And sometimes, superficial niceties papering over it all. Strat borders on the melodramatic. Do we not see our own self somewhere in this novel? She's always compassionate and never judgmental toward her characters. There are really no bad people here, just normal human beings trying as best they can to make sense of their difficult lives, to gain a modicum of understanding about things known and unknown, and so in the end hoping to find some degree of equanimity about that most common complaint of all. Life had simply not been what she thought it would be. For movies this week, we review Disturbing the Peace. This movie might be the perfect movie to watch this year, 2017, which marks the 50th anniversary of the Six-Day War. The documentary begins with Israelis and Palestinians telling their stories. For Chen Alon, his grandfather was a fervent Zionist who left Poland for the founding of Israel in 1948. The rest of his family left behind in Europe were all slaughtered. Jamil Kassas also had a grandfather who was slaughtered when the Israelis violently expelled 700,000 Palestinians, including his family village. Since then, his family has lived in a camp for 70 years. Archival film footage captures the horrors of these decades. Rocket attacks, suicide bombers, Molotov cocktails, rock-throwing demonstrators, tear gas, and water cannons. 
but violence begets violence, and so improbably, in 2006, former Israelis, soldiers, and Palestinian fighters who had been imprisoned came together and formed an organization for nonviolent peace, activists called Combatants for Peace. The violence, suffering, and death, says the Palestinian Casas, is the same for everyone. I realized that I myself was causing the same pain for an Israeli mother that my own mother experienced. A former Israeli soldier recalls joining his sister to take blankets to displaced Palestinians. I realized that it was my army that destroyed their homes and made them homeless. The peace organization uses dialogue, theater, and other mediums to spread the message of peace for all. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. And finally, our poem this week is Scott Cairn's Possible Answers to Prayer. Your petitions, though they continue to bear just the one signature, have been duly recorded. Your anxieties, despite their constant, relatively narrow scope and inadvertent entertainment value, nonetheless serve to bring your person vividly to mind. Your repentance, all but obscured beneath the burgeoning yellow fog of frankly more conspicuous resentment, is sufficient. Your intermittent concern for the sick, the suffering, the needy poor is sometimes recognizable to me, if not to them. Your angers, your zeal, your lip-smackingly righteous indignation toward the many whose habits and sympathies offend you, these must burn away before you'll apprehend how near I am, with what fervor I adore precisely these, the several who rouse your passion. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 24th, 2017. I'm Debbie Thomas.